You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 498 of this podcast. We've got this one and two more to go, and then we will be at episode 500 of the podcast, where if you've been following and subscribing and listening for some time, you know every 100 episodes, I like to do a recap of what we've discussed the past 100, what some of the highlights were, what some of the takeaways were, what was most listened to, and also what was uh, least listened to, as the case may be. You can't have all winners. Uh, there are some <laughs> some topics that definitely get more play than others. But that's for the future. That's episode 500 coming up in a couple of episodes. But in this one, I want to catch up on some things that there just wasn't time for over the course of the week. It's now the end of my third week of the new job as a controls programmer for Occidental Petroleum, contract uh, controls programmer, I should say. And this new job involves a lot of things that I've been familiar with and working around and working in or working adjacent to for the past 10 years plus. But it's a much more deep dive way of relating to the PLC programming and the HMI programming, especially. That's what I'm doing. I'm programming the PLC and the HMI on site. And these are live sites. They're sites that have been in operation. They have most of the programming already. And for the most part, I think what I'll be doing is putting things into existing programs that need to be added. Retrofitting, adding additional functionality, additional logic, making sure that that works, it's tested properly, working with operations and technicians and automation to make sure that all the points connect. But given that that's a, a, a bit of a change of pace, it's a bit of a difference from what I was doing before, well, there's a lot to learn. It's a time constraint uh, you know, to have to you know, get up early, go out, meet people who are expecting me to be on site, who are waiting on my contribution, getting a feel for the workflow. That's going to be uh, a learning curve for me. And so in the meantime, there's just this whole pile of uh, links in open tabs on my browser, on my computer at home that are just accumulating over the course of the week. If I can't podcast about them, well, then they're just piling up. And this being Saturday, I've got a little bit of time before I go and meet J.P. Chavez and Roy Garcia, the other two members of the Three Amigos, as we call ourselves. I'm going to be meeting them at a Mexican restaurant here in Greeley this morning and trying for the first time ever a dish called Menudo. If you're not familiar, Menudo is... Uh, basically cow stomach soup. <laughs> That's basically what it is. Think the equivalent of Scottish haggis, right? If you grew up with it, if it's native to your culture, you probably think, oh, what's the big deal? It's Everybody eats this, right? And then you find out when you encounter other people from other cultures that, oh, no, that's weird. We would never eat that. That's gross, whatever. I don't think it's necessarily gross, um, it's different. It's definitely different. I've never eaten cow stomach soup before, but we'll try it, right? I'm willing to try it. And, uh, I'm honored that they have invited me. Roy and JP have invited me to, uh, try some of this menudo with them. That'll be a treat this morning. But before I go, before I go and become a, uh, a full-fledged official Mexican or so I'm told, and uh, before my body is just chock full of additional testosterone with the influx of uh, cow stomach soup and also becoming a Mexican officially, not just an honorary Hispanic, but uh, you know, a, a real and authentic and legitimate one. Uh, I want to talk a bit about, for starters, 
a Wikipedia article that JP sent me about the affair of the sausages, as it's called. The affair of the sausages. What was that? What is that? Why do I bring it up? Well, last night we had session five, lecture five of our biblical training group, A Guide to Christian Theology, which we've been hosting in our home and going through every Friday night to learn better how do we be intentional in forming good Christian theology in our own hearts and minds, in our homes, in our church, in our Christian walk. And in the course of discussion, after we watched the lecture, while we were discussing what Gary Brashears, the pastor and professor whose uh, you know, video lectures we're actually watching every week and then talking around, in the course of discussion, it came up that my son Josiah recently learned what Reformation Day is. And he wasn't really sold on why we should be celebrating Reformation Day every year. Yeah, it's great that there was a Protestant Reformation, but should we have a holiday for it? That seems kind of weird. I, don't, I still don't quite understand. Like, how are you celebrating that? That just it doesn't seem to fit. Well, in the course of discussion between JP and myself and Josiah over this question of Reformation Day, we were kicking around some ideas for how Reformation Day could be more exciting. And among several ideas we discussed, uh, the notion of needing food, right? Every good holiday needs to have particular food that goes with it, that uh, you look forward to. So Halloween obviously has candy and candy corn that you associate with that holiday. Thanksgiving's got pumpkin pie and turkey and stuffing and, and whatnot. Christmas definitely has Christmas cookies and hot chocolate and candy canes and things like that. Easter in my house growing up, we had lamb every year. And Reformation Day has got what, right? It's got what? Well, one thing that would probably make Reformation Day you know, more exciting, more memorable, less negotiable, would be if we really emphasized uh, meat pies, right? You make these little rolls, maybe even donuts. Just I had the idea. Maybe we should get donuts and fill them with meat, and that can be the Reformation Day uh, food. That, that'll that be what we look forward to every year for Reformation Day. And then for anyhow, too, I, I threw in um, beer also, right? You should definitely drink beer in celebration of Reformation Day because, as we all know, Martin Luther married a brewer. And she was quite good uh, as far as brewers go, uh, supposedly. And so we definitely need to be drinking beer in honor of Reformation Day. And then just for anyhow, as well, uh, I suggest maybe we come up with an updated 95 thesis uh, every year and then go around town and, and nail it to the front doors of churches in our area to let them know, here are our grievances with what you're teaching and it doesn't match up with the Bible and, and such like that. So, so those are some ideas, right? We just threw out those ideas for how to make Reformation Day more exciting. And I think you could get a lot of people on board with uh, meat-filled donuts, beer, and uh, updated 95 thesis. It, it would be kind of like trick-or-treating that you go and you know, nail your grievances with the church uh, on all the churches in town. Maybe even, too, you invite everybody to meet you in uh, a, a, an open lot, maybe a field, all these churches that have issues. And uh, you can kind of sort of reenact the Diet of Firms, maybe, and, and have a, a free-for-all debate between the various uh, Christian churches or, or you know, churches of all stripes in your neighborhood. That can make it exciting. But one of the things that JP brought up, actually, you know, with regards to having these little uh, meat donuts, uh, as we are envisioning them or imagining them or salivating over them, he mentioned this thing called the affair of the sausages. And so he, after they left, ended up sending me this Wikipedia link to an article about or an entry about 
uh, the affair of the sausages. So I'm just going to read a little bit from that, and uh, you'll know better as well <laughs> as I do now uh, what this actually was. So from the top, the affair of the sausages, 1522, was the event that sparked the Reformation in Zurich. Uldrich Zwingli, pastor of Grossmünster in Zurich, Switzerland, spearheaded the event by publicly speaking in favor of eating sausage during the Lenten fast. Zwingli defended his action in a sermon called Von Erkissen und Freiheit der Speisen, regarding the choice and freedom of foods, in which he argued, from the basis of Martin Luther's doctrine of sola scriptura, that Christians are free to fast or not to fast because the Bible does not prohibit the eating of meat during Lent. Ulrich Zwingli was a pastor in Zurich and was preaching in a way that associated him with Desiderius Erasmus and Martin Luther. His first rift with the established religious authorities in Switzerland occurred during the Lenten fast of 1522 when he was present during the eating of sausages at the house of Christoph Froschauer, a printer in the city who later published Zwingli's translation of the Bible. So there you go, right? There you go. You could celebrate your liberty as a Protestant, celebrate having been set free from what I would say is a lot of man-made religion in Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, you know what what refused to be reformed or called back to right doctrine and, and right Christian thinking in the Counter Reformation. You're free from that. And maybe you should celebrate by eating some smoked sausages. Uh, that's a an idea. And I, th- I think a lot of people would get behind that and celebrate uh, Reformation Day if we did, as uh, this article talks about, if we did, as they did 500 years ago, eat some uh, meat, maybe even putting that meat into a donut, having it be a... a smoked sausage-filled donut. It's worth a try, right? Why not? So in other news, in other news, on a (laughs) different note entirely, moving on from Reformation Day and uh, meat donuts, I was sent a video by my cousin Brent earlier this week from the channel for Andy Go. Andy Go is an independent journalist, who became at least famous to me or uh, got on my radar covering the Antifa riots here in the U.S. a few years ago. He was threatened with violence. Uh, I believe he was actually even assaulted as well as he was trying to document and interview people involved in the Portland riots uh, in particular. But in any event, this video is a short one from his channel on YouTube in which he interviews a Scottish woman named Shanid Watson about having been a transgendered person previously. She transitioned uh, from being a woman to being a man, or at least that was the idea, that was the claim, that was what was advertised when she was in her early 20s. And it's a five-minute, 21-second interview. It's not very long, but one of the things that just really struck me in listening to the back and forth and the Q&A and her describing what she was like before transitioning and then what transitioning was like and then what detransitioning was like and how she feels now, it really struck me that she regrets not having sought counseling. That is, she says at one point, she didn't need surgery. What she needed was counseling. She needed counseling. She hated herself. She hated being a woman. She was bitter. She was angry at her situation. And she thought that changing her body to be more like a man's body would fix everything. And it didn't. It just added additional heartbreak and other physical problems to her sadness. And so she still had all that sadness. She still had all that anger, all that bitter, all that resentment that she had had before, but now with bladder problems and now having gone through a double mastectomy, being completely numb in her chest area and not being prepared for that, not expecting that, having grown an Adam's apple and her vocal cords having 
thickened up and now she's got a deeper voice and her hair got a lot thinner and she doesn't feel good, right? She's got health problems now forever because she made this choice because she wasn't given good counsel. And the big takeaway here is not that there are a million of uh, these kinds of stories right now. I don't know how many there are, right? I watched about half of an interview that Joe Rogan did with Matt Walsh, where they were talking at length about what is a woman, the documentary that Matt Walsh and the Daily Wire put together. It's a really great documentary. If you haven't checked it out, do check it out. Although it is difficult to watch, it's it's troubling. It is revealing and it's sobering and it's eye-opening. And we need to be aware of just how crazy this movement and this push is for transing our children. But At one point, Joe Rogan asks Matt Walsh how many people there are now probably who have gone through gender reassignment surgery or taken hormone therapy to transition from one gender to another or from one sex to another. And Matt Walsh throws out a number. He says, I don't know, probably in the millions at this point. And he ends up getting fact-checked by one of the producers, I assume, somebody in the background there in Joe Rogan's studio pipes up, you know, a couple minutes later and says, actually, you know, it's it's a much lower number. It's, you know, it's in the thousands, it's not in the millions. And that's an embarrassing moment, right? That's an embarrassing moment. I'm not going to embarrass myself by throwing out some number like millions, because quite frankly, it doesn't matter how many, right? Any at all is too many. Even just one story like Shanid's uh story that Andy Go. Uh, brings to us through his YouTube channel, even just one story like this is a tragedy. And if we know anybody who might be swayed in this direction and might think this is the way to get validation, this is the way to get celebrated, this is the way to get affirmed, this is the way to be told that you're special now. If anyone in our circle may be vulnerable to this, it behooves us to be ready to counsel them. This woman wished she had gotten counsel Now that she has gone through all the surgeries and the hormone therapies, the time to give that counsel, in my view, is before somebody makes these drastic self-mutilating choices, not after, not when they're stuck with the regret. You don't have to tell them then that it was a bad choice. They know, but warn them on the front end and talk them out of it and affirm what is good and what is true. I think this is really what Philippians is talking about when it says whatever things are true and good and praiseworthy and noble and commendable think on these things it's not saying ignore troubling stories like an ex trans or detransitioned uh, woman's story it's not saying don't pay any attention to that don't listen to that but it is to say we need to be reminding ourselves and one another and our children especially of what is true and what is good and focus on that so that you don't despair and lose heart and throw in the towel and say, well, what does it matter? What difference does it make? Right? That's the wrong conclusion to draw when we see chaos and disorder and pain and suffering and confusion. The wrong conclusion would be to say, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, another another interesting feature here is this idea of being numb, right? I, as a man, obviously, biologically, uh, psychologically, (laughs) before God and man, I am a man. I was born male, and uh, nothing has interrupted that, although the the menudo may, uh, I I guess, pour gasoline on the fire, or so I'm told, as far as my masculinity goes. I'll be hyper-masculine now, which is okay. Uh, You know, but as a man, I, I can't identify nor do I want to identify with what it feels like to have breasts uh, the way that women do, uh, the way that fully mature uh, women are made by God to have. I don't know what that's like, but I do know that I'm not numb, right? I don't think about it a lot, uh, but I, I know that I'm not numb in that part of my body. And yet I do know anytime a limb falls asleep, Anytime I am numb in some part of my body because I was sitting wrong or for too long or what have you, it's a very uncomfortable, unpleasant feeling. Now, just imagine having that forever, 
right? For the rest of your life, those nerves are shot and damaged and you're just going to be numb in that part of your body forever. That sounds awful, right? That sounds awful. It sounds miserable. That sounds tortuous. And actually that is what I'm convinced drives a lot of transgendered people to suicide. It's not that folks like myself would compassionately, lovingly, but firmly say, this is wrong and don't encourage other people along these lines. No, I can't affirm you. It's not that there's folks like me saying, no, this is wrong. This is an abomination. This is ungodly. This is against nature. This is a sin against the nature God gave you and God himself. No, actually what it is, is you have these folks who have transitioned. They've taken the hormones. They've taken the puberty blockers. They've undergone surgery. And now they have health problems. They have all of the psychological problems that they had before, all of the discontentedness, all of the bitterness, all of the anger, all of the resentment, all of the uncomfortability in terms of how they relate to society and the people around them. They have all of that with them still, but also trouble with their bladder or trouble with numbness, right? And then what do you do, right? What, what do you do at that point? Well, I think far better than letting it get to that point is saying, if you are a man, celebrate and affirm and embrace the gift that it is from God that you would be a man. Be content if that's all you can do is contentment, but embrace it. Look for ways that this is actually a, a gift and a blessing from God that you're supposed to steward. Whatever you are, be a good one. If God has made you a man, whether you're always feeling like the manliest of men, embrace the fact that God made you a man. Embrace what it is that he's given you. Build on that. Enhance your strength as a man by eating uh, menudo, maybe, perhaps. Right? If you're a woman, if God has made you a woman, and there are reasons, there are influences in your life that make you feel unhappy about that fact. There are reasons why you don't celebrate that. It's not a joy to you that you have a woman's anatomy and a woman's temperament and a woman's voice. And you know what is expected of women is expected of you versus apparently you know what's expected of men being expected of you. You think maybe the grass is greener on the other side. Uh, don't go to some surgeon who's going to make a lot of money off of not just your initial treatment, but also all the follow-ups for the rest of your life. Don't go to some surgeon who's then going to remove your breasts and give you hormones and give you puberty blockers and cause your hair to fall out and cause you to grow an Adam's apple and facial hair and all that. No, no, no. No, don't don't do that. Right? You you may not feel beautiful and that might be part of what's driving this, but I guarantee there is far more beauty that comes from the inside and then out in embracing the good gift that God has given you in being a woman. Or if you're a man, the good gift that God has given you in being a man. It is not for no purpose. It is not random. It is not senseless. And again, Matt Walsh stuck his foot in his mouth because nobody's perfect and certainly not him and not me. The only one who's perfect is God and the rest of us are works in progress at best. (laughs) Uh, or, or worse, we're, you know, works in regress, I suppose. But I'm not going to say there are millions of folks who have undergone these surgeries, these gender reassignments. I don't know how many. And frankly, I don't care. The point is, if it's any, it's too many. And the point is that according to God's word, it's not just those who do this or that sinful thing who God is displeased with and liable to judge or discipline or punish. It's also those who affirm sin. And we need to reckon with that. It is not enough to just not do it yourself. Like for instance, a common claim or statement about abortion is, well, I personally wouldn't ever get one and I'm totally against it, but who am I to tell other people they can't? And the the frank, blunt answer is, you are responsible to tell other people to not murder. You are responsible. You're responsible before God, according to God's word, to rescue those who are being led away to the slaughter, for one thing, 
uh, also to warn those who are headed for destruction because of their sin. You know, on the one hand, you've got the would-be victims who need to be saved from being destroyed by predators. And then on the other hand, you have people who are tempted to do horrendous, heinous things, and they have to be warned that there's a holy and righteous God who will not be mocked, who will judge them, who will give them consequences in this life and the next. They should fear that God who is able to both kill the body and cast the soul into hell. But as Christians, if we think we can just be personally against it and then say nothing, say nothing whatsoever about those who are being led away to the slaughter or those who are tempted, whose sin is crouching at the door of their heart and its desire is to be over them, but they must master it. We don't have the option open to us, according to God, of neutrality. It is just, frankly, not an option that God gives us. Can we fight all the fires in the world all at the same time? No. But we do need to be prepared to give a reasoned defense for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. We do, we do need to know right from wrong. We do need to know what is true as opposed to what is false. It is written, it is written, it is written, is how Jesus responds when Satan comes to tempt him in the desert, quoting scripture, by the way, quoting scripture, but twisting it and manipulating it and misapplying it to try and get what he wants. It is written, Jesus responds. Well, if we're going to respond like Jesus did when Satan comes our way, we have to know what is written. We have to dig in. We have to get into the scriptures. We have to study them. We have to be familiar with them. We have to be conversant with them. We have to meditate on them. That was one of the things that Josiah was describing last night that I was really pleased with his description of and and really enjoyed hearing is I opened up a question because I'm leading the discussion and we're hosting. I asked the question of what do you do when you come to a difficult passage of scripture that you don't understand or it's not entirely clear at first blush, whether because the passage is worded in a weird way or just because you, you just don't understand. Your understanding and comprehension is not so good. What do you do? What's your approach to resolving the uh, confusion? And one of the things that Josiah described was just sitting there and thinking about it and pondering it and turning it over in his head. And maybe that's not enough, but maybe that's what I do and that helps, right? I, I just, I sit there and I think about it and I, I yeah, I just, I, I, I consider it. I just keep thinking about it in my mind. And the way he was describing it, I thought, boy, that really sounds an awful lot like meditation, which is biblical. That is actually what you're supposed to do in part. It might not be the only thing that's open to you, but that is good, right? It's good for you to meditate on what God's word says and what that means and how is this true? Not just is it true, but how is it true? And how does that relate to my life and my heart and my mind? How does God want me to be transformed by the renewing of my mind in Christ Jesus? But in other news, in other news, going back to some political issues, uh, I am still thinking about the way the election went earlier this week, and specifically some of the commentary from uh, Daily Wire uh, personalities. I listened to Michael Knowles and his take. I read some of Ben Shapiro's uh, reflections, observations, uh, analysis. I listened also last night, late last night after everybody went to bed and all of our guests went home. Uh, I, I listened to Andrew Clavin's thoughts on this as well. And I, I really enjoy Andrew Clavin. I think he has a good sense of humor and that really helps a lot. He's also older, which means that he's got some perspective on uh, these things that uh, sometimes when you're younger, you don't have, right? Not that it's a fault of yours. It's just a, a factor of not having lived as long to see things ebb and flow and go up and down and come and go. But from Michael Knowles, and Ben Shapiro and Andrew Clavin commenting on the way that election day 2022 went. For one, I want to point out that I disagree with Michael Knowles' uh, attitude about Trump going after DeSantis. I don't think 
this is just politics and you need to get over it and get used to it and don't be a big baby about it and don't let it bother you. It's just, you know, this is what it is. And uh, yeah, of course, of course he's going after DeSantis and who cares, right? Trump is Trump and that's politics. I understand that this is predictable given Trump's character and also given just the way that it is and, and the way that politics works. But that doesn't mean this is how it should be. And it doesn't mean, and similar to Raphael Warnock's reasoning on abortion, it doesn't mean that this is legitimate, right? It, it can be true that this is the way that it is, and it, that doesn't mean that it's right, right? And so I am not for losing my mind and just, you know, curling up into the fetal position in the corner and crying myself to sleep for the next two years because Trump said some mean things about a governor that uh, I think a lot of us really like. And he he won in a big way, in a huge landslide uh, against uh, Crist, Charlie Crist, who was, interestingly enough, formerly a Republican governor of Florida. And now, uh, most recently, he's been uh, running as a Democrat candidate for governor against DeSantis. Go figure. But I'm not going to curl up into a fetal position, but neither do I think my options are limited to, on the one hand, having a meltdown and just throwing in the towel on paying attention to politics, or on the other hand, saying, this is totally fine. This is all right. This is just what it is. I just accept it and embrace it. No. No, that's, that's ridiculous, right? The trouble with what happened to Trump in his candidacy for president president, and also when he was president and then also since he's left office two years ago. The trouble with what happened to him is that there's a one-way street quality to everyone being allowed to say whatever they please about him and that being totally fine. If you're in the media, you could say all kinds of ugly, horrible, horrendous, nasty things and if you're the media, you just don't spin your own coverage. You don't spin your spin in a way that's negative, right? You're spinning everything that Trump says and everything his supporters say in a negative light. And then, of course, you're going to spin your own spin uh, in a positive light, right? The trouble was that there was a double standard and it was a one-way street that anything ugly and awful and horrible could be said about Trump. But if he said something mean, or tweeted something mean to somebody else. Oh, wow, it's just the end of democracy, right? It's the end of the world. This guy is unhinged. He's a lunatic. He's just totally, absolutely the worst. No, 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 no. But, right, that problem of double standards, that trouble of it being a one-way street, if it's a problem when it's the mainstream media and progressives attacking Trump and his supporters and voters who voted for him and would vote for him again, if it's a problem when there's a double standard on the part of the media and establishment types and Democrats in particular, well, then it's also a problem if within our own Republican uh, sphere or conservative uh, space, Trump is permitted to say all manner of ugly, awful things about DeSantis and we're just supposed to shrug. But if somebody says something critical back with regards to Trump. Well, then that, oh, hey, whoa, you you must not care about conservative principles. You must not care about Republicans winning. Uh, that's ridiculous, right? That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. And right now is a great time to do some thinking about what decisions were made in 2016. Again, like I said, I voted for Trump in 2016. I didn't vote for him in the primaries, but I voted for him in the general election in 2016, and I encouraged others to do likewise. I supported him and affirmed him every time I thought he was right, which was surprisingly often, actually. I was pleasantly surprised at how often I thought, yeah, that's that's correct, that's reasonable, and I think that that's the right call during his presidency. I am even willing to say I think the 2020 election was stolen from him in many ways. I think the Election uh, laws and safeguards were bypassed. I think COVID was unleashed when it was unleashed, specifically so those election laws and safeguards could be bypassed so Trump would not be in there from 2020 to 2024. I think I think it was a bioweapon, quite frankly. I think it was a political 
uh, implement to try and drive conservatives from power and Republicans from power, and especially Trump from power, I think there was fraud widespread. I think the election was stolen. I also think I agree with Andrew Clavin. Uh, who gives a rat's hind end at this point? What does it matter, right? What are we doing now? That's what I want to talk about. What are we doing moving forward? That's what I want to talk about. And, you know, in conversation with my cousin Micah earlier this week, comparing notes after the election, one of the things that I think he keyed in on, as I was telling him, I think this is really a good sign. I think it's a great thing if Ron DeSantis becomes the future of the Republican Party as opposed to Trump continuing to be our last best hope of <laughs> salvaging America. One of the things that Micah brought up was you, know, you, you look at the impression that a lot of Americans shared with the media and pollsters immediately after voting this year on what they thought was the most pressing threat to the United States of America. And their answer was Republicans being a, a threat to democracy. And that is to say that the media has repeated over and over and over again this brainwashing propaganda uh, regarding January 6th to where that's all that matters. That's all anybody is allowed to talk about and express concern about is January 6th. And if you say anything about the fraud or the allegations of fraud, well, then you're an election denier and you're with the January 6th folks. And maybe you should also go into solitary confinement indefinitely and become a political prisoner here in the United States. Maybe you too should lose your ability to run for office again. Maybe you also should lose your teaching position or your pastorate or your book deal or your what have you, fill in the blank. Your invite to uh, Thanksgiving dinner with the family, right? You name it. Micah's point was you have Ron DeSantis perhaps looking like the future of the Republican Party, but if all the same mechanisms are still in place as far as the way the way media relates to uh, Republicans and conservatives and anybody who stands up against the progressive status quo – if nothing has changed with regards to the media, if nothing has changed with regards to the consciousness of the American people, well, then the media is just going to come up with some variation on what they did to Trump, and they'll do that to DeSantis as well. And and actually, I was thinking about uh, what Micah had said just the next day after we talked about this, when I saw this story about some show, as a you know, fictional show, you know, made-up character, it's called the good fight. Uh, it's on uh, Paramount plus not a kid friendly show. And, and even just my talking about this is probably, um, uh, you know, not for young ears necessarily, but you have a character in this show, the good fight explicitly naming governor Ron DeSantis and claiming he was sexually assaulted by him at uh, CPAC, right? And it's like, what in the world, what in the world is this doing in a show? And what what exactly are you supposed to even say in response to something so absolutely ridiculous and unhinged? Well, I think what you're supposed to say, actually, if you're myself, is you know, my cousin Micah called it, right? The same week, we're not even a week out from the midterm elections showing Ron DeSantis as the clear front runner for 2024 if he runs. And hopefully he does. I, I hope he does. Immediately, they're trying to do some really crazy, weird, bizarre tampering with his reputation. Now, Trump going after DeSantis, calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. It's just lame. It's lame and it's bad form and it's ugly. And I lose a lot of respect for Trump in his saying that about DeSantis. And I hope, I hope that Trump is not our candidate again in 2024 for just this moment. He did this with Cruz as well in the 2016 election. I hated it that 
I, I hated it then. I hate this now. But you do have the media, like Micah was predicting. You do have the media already within the week trying to, through fiction, associate Ron DeSantis with sexually assaulting some man, you know, in, in a homosexual way. Not just being a sexual predator, but being a homosexual sexual predator. And it's just crazy. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Something needs to be done about that. We, again, we need to have our thoughts focused on what is good and what is true. But that is to the end of being able to reason with people gently and respectfully as to what is good and what is true and knowing the difference, right? What's the point of meditating on what is good and what is true if we're just going to be salt that stays in the shaker or loses its savor if we're not willing to be the light of the world, as Jesus calls us to, a city set on a hill that can't be hidden, if we're not willing to do that, well then, I, I don't know what the point is of meditating on what is good and what is true, to try and understand it and, and apply it in our lives, or to let our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. I don't, I don't know what the point of that is if we are not willing to push back against things like this, right? Ugly things like this, whether it's in our own political sphere, our own conservative space, whether it's in the broader culture and it's just in our neighborhood as Americans, or in my case, as a Coloradan, it doesn't matter, right? What is your ability to push back on this? And you have to, right? If you have some ability, you have to, both through positive example and through negative refutation contradiction, arguing against, debating against, reasoning with folks who think like this. But as it stands right now, there's a piece by Jack Phillips at the Epoch Times that the betting markets coming out of the midterm elections have DeSantis now ahead of Trump for 2024. And I think that's a positive thing. I think that's a good sign. That is why Trump is going after him. Michael Knowles is right. That is why Trump is attacking DeSantis because basically he sees him as a threat. Um, you know, it's, I think, good for DeSantis in some sense. Actually, <laughs> it might be the biggest favor Trump could do for him uh, in some sense to say, I hate this guy, right? Oh, how does he dare, dare win an election without giving me any credit? Ah, you know, and then everybody is going to say, oh, Trump doesn't like DeSantis. Maybe it'll be like reverse psychology, whatever. Trump says a whole lot of people want just the opposite because he's so uh, offensive to their sensibilities. Maybe it'll work in that way here as well. Some other statistics actually coming out of the midterms, besides just that DeSantis won in a landslide and a lot of candidates that Trump backed in uh, difficult races, challenging races, lost. I think actually all of them did with maybe the exception of, uh, you know, from Ohio, the guy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, uh, J.D. Vance, you know, with the exception of that guy who was really just filling a Republican vacancy as a Republican now, putting aside <laughs> those things, uh, those, those concerns or those debates, which are still ongoing, and liable to keep on going for some time. I want to talk a little bit about who voted for Democrats, right? Who voted for Democrats is an interesting question. According to some reporting by Brandon Dre from November 9th, an exit poll shows nearly 70% of single women voted Democrat in the midterms. Nearly 70%. That's crazy. That's a lot. Uh, there's a tweet here that's highlighted from Brad Wilcox that says married men broke Republican by 20 points. Married women broke Republican by 14 points. Unmarried men broke Republican by seven points. Unmarried women voted Democrat by a whopping 37 points. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. 68% of single women voted for Democrats over and against Republicans. Now, why is that? I think, in large part, 
this has something to do with the abortion question. There's a lot of unmarried women who are not necessarily uh, abstaining from the activity that results in pregnancy. I think a lot of these single women, they are still doing the things that result in pregnancy and they're upset that there's the possibility if Republicans take power of the enactment of a national ban on abortion. Sadly, I do think that's actually what's driving uh, most of the results of the 2022 midterms, uh, you know, more than fraud. I think there still was fraud. There's a lot of uh, reason to be skeptical about some of the glitches that happened in Arizona, how long it's taking to tabulate votes in a lot of these places that just so happen to also be battlegrounds, uh, how many of those races are just so happening to break uh, Democrat and go go Democrat. Um, you know, yes, right? Yes. Do I think there's fraud? Do, do I think that the leftovers and the consequences of 2020 are showing up again here in 2022? Yes, I do. Does it still matter then as a result, uh, consequently? Yes, it does. But, but whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to chalk it up to, a lot of single women voting Democrat makes too much sense. It makes too much sense that you have young women unmarried, concerned that they're going to get pregnant and be a single mother, and there's no protection in place to make sure that the father of their child or, or children has to stick around. And maybe they don't want him to, right? The kinds of men that they're potentially going to get uh, pregnant from are, are not the kind of men that they would want to be married to for life or uh, you know, sharing custody and, and the caretaking of a child with for life. But this really gets back again to what's upstream of our political situation right now. I do think the current polarization is in large part related to the results of the sexual revolution and the divorce rate. No fault divorce in particular. A lot of young people in the U.S. growing up without uh, two parents in the home, showing them how to have disagreements and how to work through disagreements and make decisions. A lot of young people growing up with either one parent or the other, but not both at the same time. Uh, I think that has produced an allergic reaction to disagreements in public uh, about anything and about everything. We just can't handle disapproval and being corrected and told no or debated with. Uh, we can't handle it. And so therefore, sharing power between the two political parties, it, it quickly devolves into this talk of a national divorce. And it also results in a lot of young people just not getting married in the first place at all. The divorce rate's going down now in my generation because young people are just not getting married at all. And then the ones who aren't getting married, they also don't want to have their hand forced. They grew up in a broken home. They don't want to raise a child in a broken home, which makes sense. But are we teaching them how to not have that? Are we helping facilitate a godly understanding of marriage and having children and raising children. This is not a good reason to do it, but this is a cause and effect type relationship that we have to recognize. If, if we want to think holistically here about the problem here in the US, we, we have to think holistically about it. Young people not getting married and not having children makes the Democrat party more appealing and more likely to win power and hold power and have their way with not just the United States of America, but the world. Young people not getting married and not having children is a large part of why Democrats are still holding on to office in a lot of places where they just flat shouldn't. The misery index is going up. The prosperity is going down, down, down. And the Democrats don't have good candidates. You know, another interesting thing here, uh, one of the tabs I had open for this week is Katie Turr, according to reporting by Alex Nitzberg over at The Blaze, uh, Katie Turr, who's a NBC News correspondent who also anchors a program 
on MSNBC. She says, she suggests maybe John Fetterman could be a future presidential nominee. Maybe he should run for president someday. Uh, The guy is not well, right? Even if I agreed with his politics, which I don't, he's not well. He had a stroke. His cognitive ability is uh, on par with that of President Biden's. Uh, (laughs) Well, I suppose, I mean, that is to say, the same party that can envision Joe Biden running again in 2024 and winning also apparently doesn't have a problem with John Fetterman potentially being president someday. But this is just craziness, right? This is craziness. The only way it makes sense is if this guy's a puppet, because again, the chickens come home to roost politically that are hatched in the home. So I think what you have is you have this desire among Democrats for a certain kind of man to run for office, to be in office, to legislate based on what their expectations have been built up or torn down to be from their home life growing up, from their childhood. And I think you have a lot of single young women. I mean, think about it this way. If you're a single young woman who's into your 30s, not married still, what are some possibilities, probabilities as far as the home you came from if you have no interest in getting married still into your 30s? Maybe you didn't have opportunity, but I don't think that's what it is for either young men or young women. It's a lack of desire or... Or it's an active resistance to the idea. It's a fear of marriage or an antipathy. They don't see the value in it or they see a lot of danger, a lot of risk. And again, this goes back to character as well. All these things are very closely related. But the kind of women who are going to be most concerned about abortion are also probably going to be the kind of women who are not married, and are also probably going to be, prior to that, the young women who grew up in broken homes, who grew up seeing their parents fight or one parent completely out of the picture entirely and not seeing, at a a minimum, not seeing their parents work through conflict and model and exemplify how you do that in a wise way. Besides unmarried women, generally speaking, voting 68% for Democrats. There's also uh, a bit of reporting by Carlos Garcia at The Blaze. Polster says Gen Z voters crashed the red wave for Republicans, and he predicted it a week before the election. So John Della Volpe, he says that the 65-plus crowd, so those 65 and older, voted Republican by 13 points more than they voted Democrat. 45 to 64-year-old, 11 points to Republicans. 30 to 44, so my age group, my demographic, voted for Democrats over Republicans by two points. So very close, very, very close. Unfortunately, more in favor of Democrats than Republicans, which I don't I don't understand. The 18 to 29-year-old crowd voted for Democrats by 28 points. So again, what we have to recognize here is there's a need for multi-generational faithfulness, there's a need for us to embrace marriage and to promote and encourage marriage. If we want to have a healthy country, we've got to have healthy homes and we've got to have healthy relationships and we've got to build up healthy expectations for how a man is supposed to relate to a woman, how a husband is supposed to relate to his wife, how a woman is supposed to relate to a man, how a wife is supposed to relate to her husband. And what will come from that, I guarantee you, is not just children, which we need. If you look at the birth rate and the demographics, we need. What will come from that is also more conservatism, a greater awareness of the cost of things. For instance, when you have eight kids like I do, you really do pay attention to what the per unit cost is on everything because you're multiplying it by that many more mouths to feed or backs to clothe or what have you, fill in the blank, whatever it is. If we're going to need multiples of it, when the price goes up, it goes up exponentially for my household. But a single person, when they get married, 
their thinking has to change. It has to. When they have children with their spouse, their thinking changes. It has to change. Their sensibilities have to change. Their way of viewing the world and reasoning and being reasonable has to change. If we're not willing to promote marriage and having children among young people, then we can kiss this country goodbye, at least as we know it. And so as I see it, and this is not necessarily a prophecy, but it is a prediction that I am very confident of, there are a couple of basic scenarios in which we see this play out in favor of those who are having children. Scenario A is that more young people start getting married and having children, and they become more conservative thereby, and that brings us to a national revival and restoration and reformation as we seek the Lord's face. That That's one possibility. And then another possibility is all the same people who are getting double mastectomies and castrating themselves and taking hormones for the other gender and puberty blockers and all the rest, getting hysterectomies, getting vasectomies, all the same folks in my generation and those following us will keep on as they have been and they will eliminate themselves from the gene pool moving forward. And when they grow up and die off, my children, if you have children, your children will inherit you might say the mess, but again, this is where Andrew Clavin, I think, was very helpful pointing out perspective. We think that these things are just going to continue on forever and ever, and there's no interrupting. And he pointed out before my time, before probably many of your times, Jimmy Carter, prior to Joe Biden, Jimmy Carter was the worst president in modern American history. And somehow or another, Democrats were able to cling to power. I would blame the welfare state and Lyndon Bain Johnson and FDR before that. I, I think that's a large part of why Democrats were able to cling to powers, drugs and sex and rock and roll. But at a certain point, the crises piled up and up and up and up, and the Democrats had nobody else to blame because they had had power for so long that they really weren't able to pass the buck and say this was the other party's fault. And what followed after Jimmy Carter was the Reagan administration, which resulted in 20 plus years of economic prosperity and stability here in the US. Now, whether we see that again, I don't know. I think DeSantis could be a similar kind of catalyst. Uh, The the way he's leading, the way he's uh, messaging and modeling and the way he's taken stances through COVID through the woke nonsense, I think he could be that kind of a figure. And I hope that that's the case. I, I hope that that's the case. But even if it isn't, if we're looking at decades, and that, that's another possibility. One possibility is we start encouraging young people right now to get married, have good marriages before God, commit themselves to God, have children, raise those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and we turn this around a lot quicker. Or B, it's going to be several decades of squalor, chaos, confusion, except for the righteous. Tell the righteous it will go well with them because the righteous are going to follow what you might call the Benedict option after a rather fine book by the same name. We're going to focus on building strong Christian community, raising up our children, having children, homeschooling, (laughs) buy my book, by the way, and this is why we homeschool, homeschooling our children increasing in the land and not decreasing. We're going to focus on that. And yeah, it'll be a few decades, but we won't be confused because we'll be committed to God's truth and to, by God's grace, doing what's right, celebrating what is good and what is true and thinking on that and teaching one another to think on that and reminding one another to think on that and encouraging one another to not grow weary in doing what is good. I think that's got to happen. At whatever scale it happens, those who live that way, who embrace that, who pursue that, who embody that, will be blessed. And those who don't will reap what they are sowing. I am sorry for them to say, but I got to run. Speaking of 
reaping and sowing and building community and strengthening what remains. I have menudo to go and eat with my friends, Roy Garcia and JP Chavez. We're going to go have some menudo. I'm going to come back uh, maybe one and a half times the man I was before, even more manly. I'm, I think I'm at 100% uh, testosterone now, but it's it's going to be like 150%, maybe 200% after the menudo. But more to come, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.